Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Warning! This podcast contains so many freaking spoilers about Matt Reeves' adaptation of The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. We are going to spoil a lot of stuff. Not only that, we're going to talk about a bunch of Batman comics and uh, Batman video games and other Batman movies. And we're going to talk about details from all of those things. We give a lot of comics recommendations, but we try not to spoil the stuff. But listen, there's going to be details in there. So just be warned. And especially if you have not seen the Batman in theaters now, watch it first, then come back. My name is Jay. <laughs> I tried to do it again. <laughs> Hello. My name is Jason Concepcion, the Jason Man. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, on Previously On, we'll be covering news in the comic pop culture world, including Marvel's... <coughs> All right. <coughs> including, <coughs> including news from Marvel's Sonyverse. <laughs> Jason Netflix Wayne is, is leave back. This in. Uh, Netflix's Marvel show is landing on Disney. Uh, Hollywood's reaction to uh, the war in Ukraine. What Funko Pop might tell us about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. In the airlock, we will be discussing what else Matt Reeves is the Batman in the omnibus uh, discussion of war and its influence on science fiction and vice versa. In the hive mind, we will be discussing Batman stuff with famed Batman auteur Pete Holmes and in the end game, Batman villains. Joining me today, joining me today is writer and comics encyclopedia. All around brilliant person, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad that we got. I'm glad we got both sides of you today. We had Jason Batman and Jason Bruce Wayne. That's right. <laughs> what, 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 hold on. Uh, Bruce I mean, Wayne, what? Uh, uh, me? I mean, it's not uh, me. What? Me? No. Uh, who? All right. First up, some news. First bit of news: deadline is reporting that Ariana DeBose has been cast in Craven the Hunter as Calypso. DeBose is nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Anita in Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story. Uh, she recently won the SAG Award for Best Supporting Actress, making her the first Latina to win a film award from the Guild, as well as the first queer woman of color to win an individual SAG Award. Uh, this is exciting, man. Uh, Craven is... Not even so secretly, one of the weirder Spider-Man characters. I'm excited to see uh, what comes of this. What do you think? Yeah. What direction do you think the Craven movie will will go in? They are stacking up character actors. Yeah, they are stacking up award winners. They are stacking up unexpected 
people. And I think that casting Ariana DeBose as Calypso is very interesting because that is like a character who will need a reimagining a la Mbaku in Black Panther. (laughs) So I I think this could be, it's going to be weird, but I think it's going to be a little bit serious. Ooh, uh, exciting. Uh, Next up, Marvel recently tweeted that their Netflix shows, plus Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, formerly from the ABC network, will all be coming to Disney Plus on March 16th. So that's Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, The Defenders, The Punisher, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. all coming to the Disney Plus platform. And you know what that means, folks. Hardcore sex and actual blood-splattering violence <laughs> coming to Disney Plus Very and a television near you. Uh, this is going to be interesting. I... I, I um, We'll see, obviously, how how Disney ends up bifurcating and and uh, you know like password kid proofing essentially their platform. Um, I didn't think this would be the way that we get nudity on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about. I think it was like Splash, where when they put a version That's of it right. up, they CG'd hair over the butt of the woman standing by the beach. So this seems unexpected, especially as we would have assumed this would probably have gone to Hulu, but. Disney Plus does have a precedent for this outside of America, in Canada, in Europe, um, in pretty much every other territory. Disney Plus is split into multiple different things, including Star, which contains most of the Hulu projects and things that are adult. Mm. So I'm assuming, like you said, some kind of tab system. I think they announced with this that the first time you open Disney Plus when the shows have been put on there, you will be encouraged to set parental controls. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to, they want to make it so no kid is watching that first episode of uh, of Jessica Jones or Luke Cage. Whichever one it is with the sex. Lots of sex. Last week, <laughs> Luke Cage showrunner Chio Hidari Coker uh, tweeted a thread about uh, working on Luke Cage, his experience doing such, including the original opening credits. And he discussed essentially parts of the show that he hopes remain in the show when the show goes up on Disney+. Plus. Quote, rewatching Luke Cage while I can on Netflix – They're going to do what they do. It's theirs. I just hope they don't sit on it for years to allow for an easier reboot or re-air with a different mix or the N-word muted. I'd love to do commentary tracks or the original credits. So that will be interesting. I will say that um, The Defenders is like underrated. I enjoyed The Defenders except for Iron Fist being in The (laughs) Defenders. But I – Jessica Jones – uh, season one in particular, I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Daredevil uh, was mostly great, although it it was mostly very good. Yeah, uh, I liked Luke Cage. Iron Fist is what it was. The Punisher is impossible now for me to disconnect from the cops among us yeah. and the and the Blue Lives Matter crowd, which is unfortunate. Uh, and Agents of Shield was great. This is a great moment for Agents of Shield stands mm-hmm. out there. Especially, it makes a lot of sense because we know Feige is not shy about bringing things yeah. from the Daredevil Netflix universe. We saw Charlie Cox in Spider-Man, mm-hmm. No Way Home. We know that the Darkhold was in Division. That had already been an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a major part. So it will be really interesting to see where this goes. I think the thing I'm most interested in is like if they make a, a kind of more adult section or a different tab could moon knight live there when it comes i I think that the timing of this makes me wonder if this is a if they're setting up something for moon knight kevin feige has stated that moon knight is 
uh, quote, brutal, which is was notable. I n- I've never heard him mm-hmm. describe a Disney Marvel project in those terms before. So that'll be interesting to see. Next up, Deadline is reporting that several films are pausing film releases in Russia in light of the country's aggressive and unlawful invasion of Ukraine. Those include The Lost City, Sonic 2, Morbius, Turning Red, and The Batman. And Vladimir Putin will soon be on his knees uh, because he can't watch the three-hour cut of Matt Reeves' Batman. He can't watch Morbius. That's what will break him. (laughs) And then finally, Marvel has unveiled a new line of Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness Funko Pops. Now... Buyer beware, it took six months for me to get my Kid Loki and the and the Alligator Loki uh, Funko Pop. So if you're ordering your Funko Pop, just know that it can take a while, but a bunch of fun stuff in there. Let's start with the first very interesting one, Supreme Strange. So this is a Doctor Strange. Dude. <laughs> no mustache. No mustache, and he's got the white. Yes. Uh, At the side of his head, kind of like Defender Strange, but he doesn't have a ponytail and he's wearing a costume that looks more like it's a Carmitage kind of costume. Also, I love that we now have Doctor Strange, Strange Supreme from What If, and Supreme Strange. (laughs) So we know we're going to get like a corrupted Strange Mm -hmm. and we're going to get obviously the who we will refer to as 616 Strange. And now it seems we may get this other Strange. You had a really great theory on who this is in Free Pro. Okay, so I so we know that we're going to have Corrupt Strange, Defender Strange, which is going to be Benedict, uh, 616 Strange, like you pointed out, Normal Strange. So I think no mustache, different hairstyle. I think this could be the one. The only (laughs) Bruce Campbell, because rumor has it, and I believe this is on the record, Sam Raimi saying this, he was originally meant to be playing Doctor Strange if Sam Raimi continued his Spider-Man universe. And I think there's even a reference, a kind of name check to to Doctor Stephen Strange in those movies. And we know this is a Sam Raimi movie. Like Bruce Bruce Campbell's got to be in it, right? I I would bet everything that I own and that I hold dear that Bruce can't. There's no way he is not in this movie. Now, yeah. I will say this for uh, people looking for evidence or, or looking to make a decision on Rosie's prediction right now. We'll pause the podcast for you. Go to Bruce Campbell's Wikipedia, the very, very first picture. Look at that picture and then look at the Supreme Strange Funko mm-hmm. Pop. And I got to tell you, I think you're right. I also think that like... The fact that it's the blue costume. Yeah. There's this uh there's this old movie that was gonna be a Doctor Strange movie that ended up they lost the licensing before it could come out. It's called uh Doctor Mordred instead. And it doesn't have anything to do with Sam Raimi, but it's like an ultimate B movie. It came out from Full Moon. It seems like something him and Campbell would probably have had interest in. It has the guy from Reanimator in it, and in that the version of Doctor Strange wears a blue costume. So all of it is just seeming very B-movie and magical to me. And also, who doesn't want a Bruce Campbell Doctor Strange Funko Pop? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Next up uh, for the Funko releases is a character simply called Sarah wearing what looks to be a Comertage-esque kind of uh, outfit, single earring, there is some speculation that could be Sarah Wolf, who's a very a minor character in the Strange Firmament. But this raises a question, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's uh, Jericho Drum or a character like Jericho Drum or the Hood or whoever, yep. when are we going to see other 
members of the magical community, Marvel's magical community, pop up in the MCU. And you would expect when it happens, it would happen in a Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, this movie seems like the space for that magical exploration. We know that in the first Doctor Strange movie, there was a drum who did die. Yes. So, it, And the whole thing that is most key to the character known as uh, Doctor Voodoo is that his brother died and he's haunted by the ghost of his brother. So that could happen to anyone who has a sibling. I love the idea that this is Sarah Drum and that's why they didn't necessarily give her a name and that's their reimagining. But like you said, it could be any number of magical characters or it could just be Disney uh, inventing a new character to bring into the movies. That's always an option. But this is the fun of this stuff. And a Funko Pop, usually that means you're a relatively important character in the movie. Agreed. Well, I am super, super excited for Multiverse of Madness. That is going to tell us a lot about the direction that Marvel is taking, which movies are the team-up movies, and what exactly the arc of this particular phase is going to look like. Because it is a lot, you know, phase one, I think... Obviously, it was a different stage and scale of the MCU at the time, but it was pretty clear. We're heading towards the Avengers, and there's going to be a team up, and they're going to fight a big bad, and it's you know it's going to be Loki. Um, here, Kang hasn't showed up yet, ostensibly the big bad of this particular phase. Uh, the multiverse is in a tumult, and it's unclear when a new Avengers team will uh, mm-hmm. appear back on the horizon. So I feel like we're going to get a lot of answers to those questions in in Multiverse of Madness. Up next, let's get into the airlock and talk about some Batman. What do you say? Let's do it. We're stepping out of the airlock and into the rain-soaked streets of Gotham City. Rosie, we saw the Batman last week. It's a three-hour extravaganza, and we're going to recap it for you right now. There was a disclaimer up top in which we talked about spoilers. I'm going to say it again. If you have not seen Matt Reeves' The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman, Paul Dano as the Riddler, an unrecognizable Colin Farrell as Oswald Cobblepot and Jeffrey Wright as Lieutenant James Gordon, yada, 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 then please don't listen to this. What are you doing? Now, I'll say this. The movie's unspoilable. It's about vibes, and the vibes are excellent. But still, if you haven't seen it, stop now. Go watch the movie. Come back. We'll be here for you. Here comes a recap. We open on Gotham City. It is Halloween early in the career of a young Batman. Second year of the appearance of Batman on the scene of Gotham City. And of course, Batman is secretly the playboy billionaire Bruce Wayne. Gotham's criminals shiver in fear when the bat signal run by up and coming Lieutenant James Gordon, the only clean and honest cop in Gotham, shines above the skyline. A series of audacious, mystifying, and intricately planned murders of notable Gothamites is being carried out by a masked maniac named the Riddler. These crimes are absolutely shocking, and no one knows what to do. First, the mayor falls. Then it's the district attorney. Then it's others. Gotham's cops are like, I don't know, We're on the take. We're a completely corrupt organization. We don't actually solve crimes. We commit them on a vast scale all the time, all the time, all the time. And so we have no idea what to do. So Lieutenant uh, Gordon says, you know what? Why don't we just like have Batman come in and actually do it? 
because you guys suck. You're terrible at solving crimes. So Batman comes in. He gathers clues. Meanwhile, the Riddler is releasing his videos all over the internet. He's basically like an 8chan slash 4chan troll. Meanwhile, Carmine Falcone runs his organized crime syndicate out of his nightclub, surrounded by his captains and various tough guys, including his lieutenant, Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin. One of the employees of the club is a cocktail waitress named Selena Kyle, secretly the acrobatic jewel thief known as Catwoman, Selena's friend and lover, Annika. She was last seen with the mayor and members of Falcone's gang. She has mysteriously vanished from the scene, and Selena... Heartsick, missing her friend, terrified for her well-being, investigates. Batman's investigation intersects with Selena's search for Annika, and an alliance of sorts is formed. An alliance, I guess that's what you call it when there's a lot of sexual tension between two characters mm-hmm. <laughs> who definitely want to get together, but there's a lot of things keeping them from each other. The Riddler. Also feels like he's in an alliance with Batman, but from afar, his murders and his horrifying videos are in the Riddler's twisted mind, kind of a conversation with the Batman, uh, who clearly has inspired the Riddler and is inspiring, currently inspiring, a new wave of diabolical and violent criminal in the Gotham underworld. The clues draw Batman to his past. Some long-hidden trauma involving his parents. Not the thing you think, folks. Guess what? Spoiler. No murder scene. You don't get it. Bruce's parents, Thomas and Martha. Uh, Martha was troubled, we learned in this movie, and spent some time at at Arkham, having had a breakdown. Thomas, at that time, was in the midst of a run for mayor, and he covered up his wife's mental health struggles with the help of... Bum, bum, bum! Carmine Falcone. Now, you could argue that Thomas didn't know that Carmine Falcone was going to murder the reporter who was reporting on Martha's troubles. I would argue that that's crazy. If you ask (laughs) Carmine Falcone to help you with something, guess what the fuck is going to (laughs) happen? Naivety. Come on! At any rate, Thomas is implicated in that. The Riddler, we discover, was a orphan whose life was impacted uh, by the death of Thomas Wayne, whose foundation funded various charitable programs throughout Gotham City. And it is heavily suggested in this movie uh, by numerous characters, various characters, that Carmine Falcone had something to do with the murders of Thomas and Martha. Where do you fall on that particular question, Rosie? I think that... This movie lays out a lot of really good stuff about Bruce's past and this way they deal with the Thomas and Martha stuff is like some of my favorite. Agreed. I love it. Because like, I like the idea, like, of course, this guy who's a billionaire philanthropist probably knows the mob. Like they set up a reasonable reason for it here, which is he saved Carmine's life. You know, and that's actually, uh, that's actually in the long Halloween comics. So it's taken directly from the comics. But like, I believe that John Turturro, who is unbelievable is so as Carmine, Carmine Falcone. He's so good. He's so good. That Carmine, when I see him on the screen, I believe he organized it. I 100% believe that he organized it because Thomas, in the end, was still a good enough guy to want to go to the police and be honest about what happened because he was mortified, you know? But something I really loved is uh, there's this moment, you know, Alfred and Bruce live together. Alfred is played by... Uh, Circus, Andy Circus. He's he's not in the movie very much, but one of the big scenes is 
he says, you know, I've spent every day trying to work out if it was like Maroney, who obviously yeah. is a big Batman villain from comics past and, and other stuff, or Falcone. And then he goes, but it could also just be some hungry kid who got yeah. scared when he was doing a robbery and shot them. And I kind of love the ambiguity there because it doesn't too. really matter. It's just the fact they died is what drives Bruce. And even when he has an idea of who it might have been, he he realizes the most important thing is like vengeance is actually incredibly da- a dangerous motive yes. that inspires other dangerous people. And I, I just thought it was, I love this movie. I love the Thomas and Martha Wayne stuff too. I, I think that uh, the comics for a while have long had a more nuanced view of uh, Bruce's parents, particularly Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, he, whereas in the movies, you know, Thomas and Martha are always these saintly figures who like yep. are so loving, cared about the underclasses of Gotham City. We're trying to make everything better. It just simply tracks someone who is that rich, that powerful, and is also running for mayor and also knows how to get in contact with the biggest mobster in Gotham City mm-hmm. would have some uh, skeletons in the closet. Now, I think they did a really cool job of like walking that tightrope where Thomas is dirty, but it's still kind of deniable. And also like the more financial type crimes were probably not his fault. Yeah. I thought this was done really well. I'll say, here's my theory based on nothing but watching the movie and reading Batman comic books. I think Falcone probably wanted to kill Thomas. I think that whether it's uh, Joe Cool or whoever it is that killed Thomas and Martha in Crime Alley, I think that was just happenstance, random. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. Carmine was relieved, like, ooh, that's great that I don't have to do that murder of a very, 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 very famous person in Gotham and, and nationally even. And internationally, when you think about like Wayne Industries, but I am very happy to let people think that I did it. Yeah. I also think like you, I think you absolutely sum up something that's so good about this Carmine as well. Gotham is such a shithole, like corrupt place that he's just an opportunist. That's it. He doesn't, this, this kind of whole puppet master aspect that he has is not really something that it seems like he planned. He just took advantage of the corruption and the awful greed that existed there. So in the same way, that would actually make so much sense where it's like someone else killed, you know, Joe Chill killed the parents or someone mugged them or whatever you want to do. Jack Napier. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what Matt is Oh, Joe Chill. Why did I say Joe Cool? Because, no, no, you know what? I actually have a Joe Cool, Joe Chill mashup tattoo. So I take full blame (laughs) for anyone getting... (laughs) anyone getting them mixed up but um yeah no i love that it makes so much sense that it would just he's a lucky motherfucker like when you watch this movie everything is just like everything has worked out for him until this young vulnerable woman who is essentially like an escort or a sex worker uh in in annika is harmed and then these two really broken people selena and bruce come to this place and he's just taken down by them because they don't just put up with it. And it's, it's, there's a lot I love about this movie, but I love that 
he's kind of derailed by just two people caring. Well, three, because Jim Gordon is a, a big ally in this movie. But that's such a good point. It's like he would just be like, that was lucky. Like yeah, everything I got, else I got in my life. One. Yeah, I don't have to I don't have to get involved in it. That's like, you know, I'm a lucky guy. That's why I'm in the position that I'm in. We should add in this movie, it is revealed that Selena is Carmine Falcone's illegitimate daughter. Now, this has been hinted at. Uh, most notably in the long Halloween, it's it's heavily alluded to. But this is the first time I can remember where it is explicitly stated that she is his daughter. So, so this is like a really interesting, complex bit of comic book history because, like you said, it's alluded to. Selena suggests it in a canon way in the sequel to the Long Halloween, which is called Dark Victory, um, by the same creative team, and then. The one place that we saw Jeff it, Logan, we'll probably- Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. I'll Tim say Sale. it because oh. you don't want to say yeah. Jeff Loeb. I'll say Jeff yeah. Loeb. <laughs> Tim Sale's up. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful gowns. Yeah, iconic. Beautiful <laughs> gowns. In the, in the sequel, it's, it's stated that Selena thinks that. Right. And then what I found out while I was getting ready for this podcast, getting ready for Batman, in the long Halloween adaptation of the movie, they actually, in the animated version, they actually do also suggest it. But here is the first time we've seen it being like, this is true. This is canon. This This is is true. And I think that's really an interesting point about the animated movies because like those, a lot of us know the DCAU, as we call it, DC Animated Universe, um, with the kind of more original movies that they, they create. But the adaptations have actually played a lot a lot into this movie because um the animated adaptation of hush which is obviously a big influence on this movie yeah, in that influence. version they decided instead of it being uh thomas elliott who it is in the comics who's bruce's old best friend they revealed that hush is the riddler and i think that's like oh yeah spoiler yeah. spoiler <laughs> for this whole this movie but like that and then the fact that selena is revealed as Carmine's daughter here. I'm like Matt Reeves, secret animation fan. Yeah, like, did he it. watch those movies? Like, I, I think that's really cool. Oh, and the other thing that we kind of should probably mention in regards to Thomas and Martha is in this version, they say that Martha Wayne was an Arkham. Right. She was actually an Arkham, one of the two founding families of Gotham, the Waynes and the Arkhams. And that does have like a comic book presence uh, in the Jeff Johns, Gary Frank, Batman Earth One. In that version, she is Martha. Yeah. Arkham Wayne. So, but it's not very common. And I think that was a moment where like when I was in the cinema, a lot of people were like, whoa, and then they get their notebooks out. Cause it's like, oh, we haven't, that's, that's kind of wild. So I think that that's another cool aspect. Nice sprinkling of Earth One stuff Mm -hmm. uh, in this movie. This movie culminates in the Riddler's plot to uh, blow the dams surrounding Gotham, flooding the city and trapping Uh, Many of the most notable citizens of the city, along with various other thousands of people at uh, Gotham's version of Madison Square Garden, the name of which I forget. I think it's like Gotham Square Garden or something. It's literally just like Gotham Square Garden. Yeah, something something like that. Those who survive the waters uh, would then be gunned down by the Riddler's 8chan army, some 500 strong followers of the Riddler's online content who are just big fans of his and showed up like with shotguns and masks that look just like the Riddler. Batman and the Catwoman save the citizens, including Gotham's rookie mayor. And with the help of an injection of a green substance, which was uh, very uh, notable, uh, Bruce manages to fight off the Riddler's thugs. Not all 500. We only see him beat up like maybe eight. Yeah, so there's still few. like 442 
uh, Riddler thugs out there somewhere. In the end, the Riddler finds himself in a cell next to a mysterious criminally insane person who is the Joker. Confirmed 100% it's the Joker. It's the Joker. The Joker says, this city has a way of turning people into clowns. Oh, don't cry. You did so good. I have a riddle for you. What do you value more when you have fewer of them? A friend. Boom. He gets it on the first try. And then at the end of the movie, we watch Selena and Bruce ride out through the countryside on the outskirts of Gotham together. And then he goes right, she goes left towards Bloodhaven, and he returns to Wayne Manor. That's our movie, folks. Let me ask you quickly, what, uh, the green liquid that Bruce injects like into his thigh I think uh, when I see that because of the era of comic book fan I am, I think it's some kind of Bane, Venom, That's Bane drug. That's my thought as well. And and canonically, you know, something that uh, I think a lot of us kind of laugh about is even if it's not Bane, which seems right. very un reeves in this world, though I think there's a great way you could do it. But like Batman has a lot of fucking Venom stories. Like yeah, there's a lot of there's different lot of Venoms. There's always like some Venom, some organic Venom, some chemical. But yeah, I mean, Matt, when the exact right amount of over the top, it's bright green. That could have been any color, but he went I mean, like they, that is like neon. To, and, the, and the effect it had on him, like he immediately yeah. was like, he, he got like, to uh, he got to really have like a big Robert Pattinson like wild good time moment there where he's like yeah, and his he's like <laughs> just a close up on yeah. his face. I was like, oh Rob, I'm so happy for you. Like you really got to go all out. <laughs> Final question before we get into the discussion: Is Solomon Grundy just like drowned now? Is he dead? Ah, <laughs> uh, dude, I wonder about that, you know, because like this movie took so much from the Arkham games yeah. that the idea of having of, of a version of him, whether he's there's so many ways you could do it in yeah, this kind of realistic world. Yeah. I wonder if there's a version of him that's floundering somewhere under the iceberg lounge. Rosie, what are your thoughts on the Batman? Matt Reeves's take on an iconic oh. pop cultural character. I love this movie. Yeah, I did. I, love I, it too. I just can't get over. I did not think I was gonna like this movie that much. Like, I love Robert Pattinson. I love Zoe Kravitz. I really like Matt Reeves' work. I've spoken to him a bunch of times. I think he's a really thoughtful guy. But the trailers just—they—they they didn't look like the movie, in my opinion. Like I the agree. movie, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a dark movie, but the cinematography by Greg Frazier is like unreal and it's so beautiful and there's so much romance and i think the mo thing i love the most about it when I've, I've been thinking about it a lot is like i love the stories that matt chooses to tell in this world like it's essentially a seven day long detective story yes and it's intimate and it's noiry and it's inspired by it starts because a young woman who's vulnerable goes missing and her friend and this weird guy dressed as a bat decide to look for her. Like, that's such an intimate, there's no, you know, and I love the MCU, I love Thanos, but there's no gems. There's not particularly like a MacGuffin. Like, this yeah. is just a really intimate, weird story. And it's three hours long. And I'm usually like a proponent of like, I'm like, every movie could be 90 minutes. But I've thought so much and I actually would not cut any of this movie. Like, everything works. Everything leads to something else, whether it's an emotional thing, a vibes thing, whether it's like that big kind of gut punch reveal with the mm. twist at the end with the Riddler. 
I just thought this movie is so good. I, I'm I, so happy. I loved it as well. Listen, if I had one nitpick, and this is like a nitpick, it's not even a real critique, is that I, it, we could have got to the Riddler faster. That's all. But yeah. I loved it too. I, I think it just captured a lot of the things that mm-hmm. I think that I love about Batman and I think a lot of people have loved about Batman. And it is truly... It's the first Batman as a detective. Yes. As the world's greatest detective movie ever. And it's crazy that we've gotten, we've went this far before getting this movie. It really is all about Bruce slash Batman looking for evidence, thinking about the clues, trying to figure out what's going on, unraveling a mystery there. Yes, he beats people up, but he does a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. grappling with, uh, grappling with the evidence, drawing yeah. out charts, like really uh, using that incredible brain for investigation that we get so much of in the comics and really haven't gotten that much of in in the movies. And the other thing I loved about it is like, I guess because of the push to create like an interconnected DC EU uh, with the Justice League and tying mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, all. Uh, the existing members of the Justice League into a single uh, single movie property, Superman, Cyborg, and, uh, Aquaman, etc., Wonder Woman. There's, it's, we. I felt like we got away from Batman as this crime fighter who, yep. for the most part, fights criminals and whose best, most iconic criminals are not like, you know, being aside, are not like super powered maniac, like with mm-hmm. who can fly and can destroy things with their eyes or with ray beams, stuff like that. They're just like brilliant criminals, like truly yeah. genius level criminals. Uh, Carmine Falcone, just like a, a, mm-hmm. a gangster mafia member, mafia boss par excellence. Uh, the Penguin, a very psychotic, violent gang member. Uh, the Riddler. Just a psycho, like a psychopath, like could not, is not going to beat anybody in a straight up fight, but has this diabolical ability as a villainous super genius to twist vulnerable people's minds and to make into them becoming henchmen for him and Mm -hmm. has a unique talent for just uh, weaving these unbelievably intricate crime scenes, that kind of stuff where uh, that, that frames Bruce Batman as this street level protector of Gotham is just for me, it's like the essence of, of who Batman is. Uh, And I just, I loved that aspect of it. And then I love that it draws on some of uh, the most influential and Mm -hmm. iconic Batman stories that haven't been, haven't been touched yet. Long Halloween hush uh, you said it. it the, essentially, the Riddler is Hush in this in this mm-hmm. uh, version of a Batman story. Um, you know, they do the dark. The thing that especially comes from Hush that I think is so interesting is like the Riddler is this like dark reflection of Bruce. Like yeah. he is what it's like if you're an orphan with no money, with no support, with yes. no Alfred. You know, I thought the relationship between Bruce and Alfred is so interesting because Bruce just does not respect the role that Alfred has played in his life until he's going to lose him, you know? And yeah. there's, I think there's so much interesting stuff there. And it takes so directly from these comics, like 
the Selena Kyle we see in this movie is David Mazzucchelli's Selena yes. Kyle from year one. I was rereading it and I was just like blown away by the way that Matt translated oh yeah the art and and you know i i went to a q a with um matt and rob and zoe and a producer at warner brothers and so you know matt actually said that zoe was so integral she was bringing in comics and bringing in oh, things wow. and saying let's bring this panel to life and i feel like you can really feel that love and kind of reverence for that aspect of batman that you're talking about which is like as soon as you put any character human whoever superpowered or not next to superman you have to change the scope yeah, of what they can absolutely. do because superman is a god yeah. you know um so to have batman in this space of being a detective being somebody who actually and this is something i think is so cool about this movie is like you talked about these ground level hero like ground level villains you know who he can fight against which makes sense because he doesn't have any powers but um something this movie does is it reckons with the idea that they wouldn't exist if batman didn't exist yes i'm glad that they did that because that is a th i mean that's directly from long halloween that is one of the themes of that story is uh was it the appearance of batman on the scene that caused Mm -hmm. All of these diabolical criminals to up their game. They they raise their level of viciousness and criminality and violence in order to meet the challenge of Batman. Is isn't there some kind of symbiotic relationship between the crime fighter and the criminal? And I love that they went there. Yeah. They went there so deep as well. Like, and that's the Mobius, you know, the Mobius strip of Batman and the Joker. Who came first? Mm. Who is who is the fault? Like could the Joker exist without Batman? Could Batman exist without the Joker? And they do that here so well. Like the really famous scene from the trailer that I think got a lot of people excited is when he's he's fighting the gang who kind of look like a, a Joker gang or a mutant yeah. gang or a little bit like Warriors, uh, which is a great scene. And the kid in that who kind of cries, he ended up getting cast as Tim Drake in Titans because people were just so stoked <laughs> for his emotional range that he showed in that moment. But Batman says... I'm vengeance when they ask who he is, you know, and the kind of final big ending part of the movie, he's fighting these Riddler goons and Jim Gordon pulls the mask off one of the Riddler goons who literally is like about to mass shoot like yeah. women and children in an emergency situation. It's it's quite horrifying, but very timely and, and, and feels quite raw that Matt chose to go that way. And, uh, and he looks at Jim Gordon and he says, I'm vengeance. And that is just like such a brutal wake up call for Bruce. Like it doesn't matter. It's intention versus impact. You yeah. Know, you brought up the Punisher earlier, right? I was thinking a lot about how this movie is in conversation with superhero stuff that's come before because the Punisher was not created. I think, you know, Jerry Conway didn't create the Punisher so that he would become a right wing icon. Right. Right. But the notion of the Punisher in the stories that have been told and the idea of this lone wolf vigilante and his symbol of the skull, that has been appropriated. And the impact versus the intention, the impact is what we think of now. We think yeah. about the skull on it's people's a, cars. We think absolutely. about the way that it's been utilized by the far right. And I kind of love that this is like a Batman story and it's like intention versus impact. Like Batman wants to do something good, I guess. He wants to do something to make Gotham better, but his impact has been horrific. You, you make a good point because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot with this movie is that I think there's a world in which you could argue this is like the best Bruce Wayne, like character evolutionary arc mm -hmm. in 
a Batman in a Batman movie, certainly in the Christopher Nolan, the post Christopher Nolan era. Batman begins. Okay. Bruce Wayne. We see he him. Journeys. He, he journeys, right? But he doesn't like fundamentally evolve. I think in the Dark Knight, there's some evolution there. And then, you know, in the Dark Knight Returns, I think he's basically the same guy. In this movie, Bruce Wayne starts off saying, I am vengeance. I am, I am avenging the murder of my parents every time I crunch my knuckles into the face of some thug every single time I am avenging that murder. Through that process, we get to a place with Bruce where towards the end of the movie, he, one, realizes that, wait a second, maybe what I'm doing running around uh, in a in a black uh, bat costume, driving mm-hmm. the streets in this souped up uh, supercharger Batmobile, maybe it is causing the criminals to become more violent and more intense. Maybe that is happening. And two, if I'm going to do this, I've got to be more than vengeance because I can't do it without the city. I need to, I need to inspire Gotham, the people of Gotham Mm -hmm. to try and, and, and reach a higher level to hopefully transcend all this violence, all this criminality, all this corruption so that they realize that they can do something better. And the only way that we can achieve that is one, I can't be this lone wolf figure. I have to try and do it with the city of Gotham, with the people. And the only way I can do that is to try and inspire them somehow to be a more hopeful figure than this just uh, sulking shadow of vengeance that I've been. And that's the place we arrive at at the end of this movie. And I thought that that was like... I was that crying. is the spirit of Batman. That is Batman to me. And it captured it in a way that felt like really essential to the character. And listen, I love Batman Begins. I love Dark Knight. I'm not so hot on the third movie. But I think that this captures an essential piece of, of Batman Bruce Wayne DNA that hasn't mm-hmm. been shown before in this particular way. I totally agree. It was like such an unbelievable surprise. And I think it kind of cemented how much I love. I was really, I really enjoyed the movie. Like I love the dark noir. I love the detective. But to have that arc from kind of like brutal, you know, the the guy who he's saving in that opening sequence is like, please don't hurt me. Like he is this figure of fear, right? And that's always why he chose the bat, et cetera, et cetera. Though they don't get into that in this movie. But to have that ending, the moment where he decides he's going to help and he leads the, the, you know, the new mayor and all these citizens, the kid of the mayor who was the, the previous mayor who was killed. And he leads them out with this flair. And he sort of has this realization that the first thing he has to do is actually like help people. Yeah. I found that to be such a like great moving, surprisingly like hopeful ending that just, I was so, I thought that was so great. I just, I really, that that added a layer to me that we haven't had in any I agree. It, 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 I really felt like, oh, they get it they get who this yeah. character is. And I didn't, I mean, I certainly didn't see it in Dawn of Justice or, you know, any of the Affleck uh, Batman uh, properties. Back to what you were talking about with the influence of Batman Year One uh, by Frank Miller and the great uh, David Matthew Kelly on, uh, on this movie, particularly the look of it. There's a panel that is just like etched in my mind. And it's, uh, so Bruce hasn't, settled on the Batman costume, right? But he is doing some like ground level work to try and figure out, okay, what is it like 
on the streets. If I'm just going to walk around, I need to get the energy of it. So he's walking through like Gotham's version of Times Square dressed as like this uh, guy with a fake, he's got a fake mm-hmm. scar on his face and he's got this beanie and he's just walking around and he, he ends up tussling with a pimp and this is his first meeting with Selena Kyle. And the way that panel is drawn with the seediness of it, the lights of the, of the signs of the various storefronts in this particular area of Gotham City, the way they shine and the rain and the grittiness and all the different like characters skulking about on the street. That is what what has been translated in every mm-hmm. in every scene of this movie. It's really fantastic. They did a, a, an amazing job with that. I wanted to ask about the Joker. Does this mean that at some point in the first year of Batman's career that he had captured the Joker? Or is this like a pre, pre-chemicals, pre-Red Hood, uh, Joker? What do we think is happening here? Okay, so what we see in the in the little glimpse that we get, it, yeah. oh yeah, it's the, the unseen Arkham inmate, as he is credited, is played by Barry Keown, which a lot of people thought it was going to be. You might have most recently seen him in my favorite yes. movie, Eternals, the Eternals, where he played Druig. But now he obviously took one of the most, like, this is like the hottest role you could for the last 50 Absolutely. years in Hollywood, is yes. like to play the Joker. So that what we do see is actually this really horrific, like, gnarly, like, bubbled kind of scar yeah, next it's... to his mouth. And, and he has the little curly hair. It looks actually quite like this brilliant frank quietly cover he did for joker number one mm. and i think it was from last year it was very monstrous you know which i which i thought was really great um i think because of matt reeves yeah. and because of the way this movie is and the yeah. things that we love about it i think you're absolutely spot on that this is someone that batman has tussled with before Maybe in his earlier years when he was more violent, he wasn't thinking about these things. Especially, I could imagine, you mentioned, you know, Red Hood. I could imagine Matt taking from that aspect of the killing joke, which is obviously like very controversial, but also like one of the most iconic Batman stories of all time by um, Alan Moore and Brian Boland. And the origin that they kind of reconfigure there from different parts of Batman history is he's this sad comedian and he wants to support his family, gets lured into this terrible thing gets you know he gets horribly disfigured and he becomes a joker i could imagine a version of that where like there is a tragic origin mm. to the joker that ties bruce and the joker together and i think it's it's funny because it's like obviously this is like there's going to be another movie and then that's cool but like this actually to me had much more impact than that because i think like we talked a lot about the hopefulness of this movie and i think that ending with a bruce who wants to do better and then setting up a collision with like the most chaotic, nihilistic, yes. like evil character is just so heartbreaking and could be like so cool. So I, I think you're onto it. I think this means that in his first year, this was someone who an action that Bruce committed impacted. It might not have been direct. Maybe he did something. I think that's probably right. right. Yeah. Maybe he did something that affected his life. Maybe yeah. he, you know, crashed the Batmobile and killed his family, like some kind of tragic he is the reason the Joker exists. I think that is very likely. Another thing I wanted to mention is, this is a thing I did not see coming. Basically, the place where this movie ends is a version of uh, the beginning (laughs) of the Batman No Man's Land arc in which an earthquake in that particular instance, you know, uh, destroys a vast 
uh, pieces of Gotham City, which is then like cut off from everybody else and it's isolated. And then Batman is uh, uh, has to like bring structure and rule of law and order to this isolated Gotham City that has been half destroyed and cut off from the rest of the world. I did not think that we were going to end up nope. in that place at the end of this movie. Like that was really a surprise for me. Yeah. The third act in this movie just... It's the one thing that, like, I would understand. I, I think you can objectively say it's like a jarring choice, but I think that it works because of the nature of who the Riddler is. We've all basically been underestimating him the entire time, right. just like Batman, and this is how this happens. But yeah, it's really funny. Like, immediately, that's what I thought of. No Man's Land, iconic stuff. Like, iconic just absolute. And, and yeah, and it comes off to Cataclysm where there's this earthquake, and essentially what happens is, the reason that I think this is actually... Will I think that No Man's Land will be a big influence on if we get a second one of these movies? I agree. Because Matt Reeves really loves like a political story. And one yeah. of the big parts of that story is like the US basically yep. kicks Gotham out. And also that could fit into the notion where when we leave Gotham, there is essentially no government. Yep. There is no police. It is a space that Bella Real and Jim Gordon and Batman are going to try and reimagine to be better. And if it's isolated from the rest of the country, the rest of the world, that gives them more kind of space to imagine a different way of living. But it also obviously makes it much harder for them to get help when inevitably, you know, the Penguin, yes, uh, the Riddler and the Joker who are apparently going to team up, you know, yeah. they could all come out and there's been precedent in Batman stuff. And if you've seen the Harlequin animated series, they did a really funny version of it. But like Gotham could end up in a situation where there's multiple different areas run by different famous Batman villains. Here's what I love about if that is the case for our sequel to the Batman. It's a perfect on-ramp for the arrival of Huntress, for yes. the arrival of Robin or Nightwing or both. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect on-ramp kind of story for the arrival of Oracle. I mean, listen, Jim Gordon... Yep. Is doing a great job by himself as the only clean cop uh, uh, from the Gotham City Police Department, but he's he would need help. What yeah, better I, help? What better help than the uh, the hacker par excellence Oracle? I this it's a it would be a great way to introduce in a very natural, very grounded, very mm -hmm. like early in their careers type of way all of these characters from uh from Batman's uh, pantheon. Yeah, Matt Reeves has actually said like this is not an origin story for Bruce. We don't right. see the death. We don't see anything right. else. But what it is, is it's an origin story for every rogue that we see. The version of the Joker we see in the unseen Arkham inmate, you know, Matt said it's the character you think it is, but it's not, he, he isn't the Joker yet. He's not that version. So I think that's such a brilliant idea. And you know what Matt has done here as well that we haven't really given him a lot of credit for, but like he is also, he is, broken the contemporary curse of too many villains yes we all know that that can be a problem now look no way home did a great job but sure. you could argue about the villainous nature it was a lot more ambiguous and, yeah. and kind of uh, a fun kind of nostalgia trip but he had multiple villains here i mean colin farrell i'll give him 10 out of 10 i, mean, I loved he was so good i loved the sweetheart i loved how he was kind of this Dick Tracy, almost also like he. there was this aspect of the fantastical. Batman smashes his head against the window. He doesn't bleed. He's fine. It's like Kingpin almost. Like, yeah. So I'd love to see where does the line, if you introduce all these different characters, like 
where does that line drawn? Like who has these edges of superpowers? And also just like you mentioned Oracle, one of my favorite things about this movie is when, so Bruce and Selena team up and Selena puts in his little retro-futuristic contact lenses yeah. and she goes into the club and Batman is Oracle. Batman yes. is the man behind the screen. That made me and smile. And he's talking to Selena. It's so well done and it's such a good understanding of the things that people want to see in these movies, but Matt just does them a little bit differently. There was another moment just like that that was very small that made me just like grin and it's... Uh, they've they've uh, gone into the club. They've arrested Oswald Cobblepot, the penguin, and his hands are uh, in the cuffs. He's like does this little penguin waddle because yeah. he's like tied up. And it was just a really, really small moment that mm-hmm. was really, really good. That just is one of those things that is a signal like, don't worry. We understand what we're doing here, which was just uh, uh, really great. As we uh, start talking about uh, – just our Batman reading list, uh, stuff that both influenced this movie and that we just really like. I I, I realized that we should bring in uh, producer Chris, who is a huge Batman fan, to yes. get his take. Chris, come into the pod. Come into the pod, Chris. <laughs> Apple. <Apparently. laughs> Welcome to Gotham. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Gotham, Chris. <laughs> what did you think of this movie? I, like Rosie, I was very skeptical. Yeah about this going in. Very, very skeptical. Uh, and, and Rosie was kind of to not dissuade me of those notions beforehand, uh, which I appreciated because I was like, it looks, I'm so tired of everything being gritty. Like, can we not yeah. have another director out grit the <laughs> previous ones? It's like, that's, it was like this constant contest. And then to what you were talking about earlier with it ending on a hopeful note, it's like, I was one of the few people that didn't like The Dark Knight when it came out specifically mm. because I thought the ending was very not a Batman choice. Yep. And this is the exact opposite ending. Mm-hmm. Like it's a hopeful Batman. It's one that I thought we would never see, to be honest, especially not coming out of this movie. And I, I was blown away by it. I think it's the Batman movie I've been waiting my whole life to see. Yeah. Like, I, I can't say if it's the best one. I, I think I need to revisit it one more time. But certainly I am so impressed with everything everyone did on it. And being the huge animated series fan that I am, this is like yeah, Rosie mentioned before. I mean, like, yeah, there's like... It, that the animated series DNA is all of the voiceover stuff. It's so yeah. great. it's great. I I never thought we'd get an animated series inspired movie, and it was this one. I was like, it felt like it was gonna be the opposite. And I was blown away. It's so it's so incredibly fun. Uh, favorite moment from the movie? I think it's probably the car chase. I mean, I'm I'm oh. a huge car person. We didn't person even in talk general. about it. We it's, didn't even talk about these set so pieces. Good. It's, it's so great. So good. I mean, I'm I'm a huge huge like if it's weird as it is, like a Batmobile stand. Like I have my my little collection of Lego Batmobiles kind of off camera over here. And then when I first saw the car, I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm kind of, where's like the comic book style version? And then I watched it and like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Yes. Like he builds it himself. It's this monster. I guess it's like Christine inspired. Matt yeah, Reeves instead. Yeah, I love, that, it's yeah. so horror. When you see it first light up, you're like, is he even in there? Like, is this car possessed? You right. know, is it? That, and I think like, I was just, we should shout out um, Francesco Francavia who did these Batman mm-hmm. 72 yeah. concept arts that were definitely a huge influence on not only yeah. the Batmobile, but like his Batman has a collar. Like they were definitely looking yeah. to that. So I yeah. just, so good. I should add that I, that's the other thing. Uh, you mentioned it. There's no Lucius Fox 
you know, mm-hmm. genius engineer mm-hmm. who has been overseeing like various military uh, program, secret military programs and and routing that hardware to Bruce Wayne. This is a young Batman who's like, I got to do all this shit myself. Like I, I have yeah. to build my own car. I have to uh, I have to source my own electronics. I have to create my own suit. Uh, all of this. It all works. It's all functional. But it's also like there's a rough edge to a lot of the stuff. It's a mm-hmm. little janky. It's a little blocky. It's a little like, okay, let's just bolt this thing on to this other thing <laughs> and see if it works. And I love that aspect of it. Cause it, again, just a different take on Batman that is different from the uh, film perspective, but also feels part and parcel to the, what is essential about the character. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Chris. Yeah. Thanks for letting me come on and, and share my thoughts. I've been itching to talk about this. So <laughs> Okay, Rosie, let's talk about our our reading slash watching list. Why don't you get us started with if you like this movie or if you just are like, I like this and I want more Batman stuff. I just want to know what else to dive into. Where would you point people to to start with? Look, in my life, uh, where I'm at now, it's rare that you're going to hear me recommend a Frank Miller comic. But I will say Frank, Frank Miller's number one talent frank had a great 1987 let's just you know what? put it there okay, yeah. well let's be real okay yeah. and also like the other thing is his great talent is his collaborators yeah. lynn varley's colors yes. on the dark knight you would never remember that book if it wasn't for klaus yes. uh, jansen and lynn varley so like batman year one i think that is the book you have to read after this like it have blew to. my mind I've read it like so many times so many, since yeah. I saw the movie. And I'm one, it's it because the way that Mazzucchelli brings the world together and creates it and, and the absolute streamlined, stripped back nature means it's like, I read this comic with n- no qualms or worries. There was nothing in it that had some of the worst tendencies of Miller's work. And like the representation of Selena as this badass sex worker who just yeah. absolutely loves her friend and will do anything to help her whose costume design is like these latex pants and this corset with a shaved head. It looks like Zoe Kravitz. I mean, it's unbelievable. The color work, there's actually a panel of Selena in her window that they took directly for the movie that I'm so tempted to get tattooed because I'm just obsessed with the way Maz Kelly drew this book. It's a Batman detective story. It's the early years of his life. It's seen through the eyes of Jim Gordon, Jeffrey Wright. We didn't even say how brilliant he is. My favorite, Jim Gordon. He is great. I mean, Jeffrey Wright is one of those, for me, is like the late Philip Seymour Hoffman has mm-hmm. never has been in bad movies, but has never been bad yep. in anything ever. I love Jeffrey Wright. I think he's been so great in everything he's ever done. It's a great Jim Gordon story. It's yep. a great Batman story. It's a great Selena story. I think if you read this, you're going to be like, wow, you're going to feel like you're seeing a little bit of something special from what kind of went into making this comic. So that's my first one. What about you? I couldn't agree more. Batman Year One is a comic book. I got it as a trade. It's a comic book that really changed, it it really changed the way I read comics. Like Mm -hmm. it is, first of all, it sets in stone what I think of as Batman, as Batman's origin, the way Gotham looks. Like to this day, if I pick up, a Bronze Age Batman, a Neil Adams Batman. It looks like Batman, but what I think of as Gotham is what David Mazzuccelli drew. Yeah. That's what I think about it. And it is, 
iconic. It's so, so good. It tells this incredible story of uh, Bruce Wayne returning to the city after years away, deciding that he has to do something. He has to uh, do something about this, the crime that is taking over the streets of the city he loves. And he doesn't really know what to do, but he settles on somehow making criminals afraid that justice is finally coming for them. And he, mm-hmm. and he settles on this iconography of the Batman. Everything about the way uh, the panels look about, oh. again, Frank Miller, is, I feel the same way. Frank Miller, there's a fascist streak to Frank Miller that's a turnoff for me. Mm-hmm. That said, and it's very evident in in The Dark Knight Returns, uh, his it's other- his other vigilantes as well. Like, it's easy to lean into it. But his work in this is is fantastic. And I've never felt more like I understood what Bruce Wayne was going through than Batman Year One. I just love mm-hmm. it. I think it's one of the greatest comic book stories ever told in a perfect wedding of words and artists. Yeah. And like, you know, I love the comic book shop experience. We both do. I will say, if you can find a copy of these it's four issues long yeah you can find them in comic shops they used to be a dollar now they're around 10 to 15 to 20 depending on where you go but if you can find one it's worth getting even just that first issue the original colors on the newsprint it doesn't look like anything else that's it doesn't look like anything else that's a great point thank you for saying that because i I know a lot of people out here are probably uh reading comics on uh Mm -hmm. on marvel unlimited or uh, dc's similar app or through formerly through comicology or, or however you're reading it, the colors and the way it looks are so different than on the page when you get the printed mm-hmm. book, especially stuff from that era, that it is a really different and strangely textural and mm-hmm. visceral experience when you read it in the comic. That's a great point. So if you can find that, eBay is another way you can do it, but go to your comic shop. You can probably find it. Yeah. Uh, next, uh, I'm going to pick, and I think you'd probably agree, uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sales. Got to be done. Uh, uh, Thirteen issue limited series, The Long Halloween. It just looks fantastic. It's a great Unreal. story. If you liked the energy and the tone and the vibe of Matt Reeves, the Batman. Guess what? The Long Halloween is mm-hmm. probably the the story that most influences that movie. And just get it because it is. Incredible, like whiffs yeah. of The Godfather, whiffs of Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. whiffs of every great like Batman story that had ever been told up to that point. One of the most devilish jokers. <laughs> the way Tim Sale like renders the Joker is like mm-hmm. all almost like a stick figure with these bizarre angles yeah. to his elbows and knees. It's great. 10 out of 10, agree. Also, I think like if you're getting if you love this stuff, like I yeah. and like we do, which you know, we obviously do. <laughs> and you do because you're listening. Yeah. But like The Long Halloween is a great place. If you read that comic and you go and see this movie, you're going to be able to get that absolute joy of like seeing where they took things from. You can call them Easter eggs. You can call them hidden details. You can call them references. But you, The Long Halloween is a great comic book where you'll be able to go, oh, that's where that's from. And yeah. you'll be able to share that with people. You'll be able to be like, oh yeah, this is where, you know, the whole thing about Carmine and, and Bruce's dad being being friends you know there's a reason that the first thing we really hear bruce say is the date which is the 31st of october like matt reeves wants you to know this read the long halloween this the the carmine falcone in the long halloween is the carmine falcone in the Mm -hmm. batman uh okay what do you have next 
Okay, you know what? I'm just going to... This is going to be an addition to the last one. If you see it, the Dark Victory follow-up, Too Long Halloween, that's got a lot of stuff with Selena and Falcone that seems relevant. But the one I'm actually going to say you should definitely read, this is by Icon, who I know we both love. And this was the first book, I believe, that Matt said was one of his biggest inspirations on the DC fandom introduction of the trailer a long time ago, which is Ego and Other Tales. And it's the iconic Darwin Cook, the stunning art of Darwin Cook, one of the most iconic, absolutely iconic Catwoman artists of all time, and Paul Grist. And this is really interesting because when Matt said this was an inspiration, I was like, Ego? I was like, this, but when you read it, not only is it stunning, but like, it's a story about Bruce versus Batman. It's Mm. a story about Bruce living with the guilt of being Batman and he thinks that he's committed this horrendous crime and he's trying to live with the guilt of the pros and cons of being Batman, the greater good versus the small sacrifice, the the idea of Batman as a figure of hope rather than a figure of fear and so much of the emotional DNA of that story obviously influenced Matt and Rob's kind of vision for the Batman. I love Darwin Cook's art as well. There's like a, how would you describe it? It's like almost like a Norman Rockwell, like a real, Mm -hmm. a classic, almost like 1950s and early 60s advertising style. Yeah. It's like Batman the Animated Series meets Norman Rockwell. Like, you know, the opening of WandaVision that everyone really loved? I think it was episode three. Those kind of bewitched-esque cartooning that's just so evocative and fun. And honestly, one of the the most respected kind of cartoonist style art cartoonists in comics. Like he makes stuff that looks like cartoons, but it still has this emotional heft that people really respect. Yeah, I love it. Okay, next, I guess I will pick. My next one would be uh, Hush by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. Jeff Loeb really had a run here in the 90s with Batman. And Hush, is, uh, the Riddler's arc from the Batman is very influenced by Hush, the mysterious, bandage-faced criminal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who, through guile, through intellect, through mischievousness, through a, a certain kind of criminal genius, manages to manipulate various members of Batman's rogues gallery into conflict with Batman in a way that obscures Hush's identity, which is eventually unveiled, not necessarily in in the Hush story, although Batman does guess who it is, but later on in the sequel to the story, it's great. Hush is great. Yeah, Hush is like, the thing that I love a lot about it is like, it it's this kind of absolute unbelievable mix of this really intimate story about Batman and his best friend, who, spoiler alert, may or may not be Hush, and, and you, that's kind of the big arc is like, wow, Batman had a friend who went through a similar situation, but every issue is also like an outrageous villain of the week. And yeah. Jim Lee, who's like 10 out of 10 icon, love him so much, just like killing it at DC image founder. He, I am like yeah. his number one fan. He has so much fun in this book. I was he rereading it and the art is just bonkers. Like him and Tom McFarlane are like probably my, another image founder, probably one of my, they're, they're my warring Batman faves because like I love a good cape and those two love a cape he's got listen there is Jim Lee loves a cape and he loves like Batman full-on punching someone in the face and Mm -hmm. putting Batman's entire body in the panel with the cape like flapping in the background or classic Jim Lee pose Batman like 
jump kicking somebody in the face oh, yeah. with the with the legs kind of splayed out and the cape uh, billowing in the background. If you love that kind oh, yeah. of Jim Lee shit, Dude, it is all over Hush. Y- you mentioned uh, Huntress earlier, and before we move on to the next rec, like hun- some great there Huntress. is such a there's this like Huntress splash page where she's wearing this costume with like the upside down cross, and it's like a cut out window boob, and she's like wearing these chunky boots. That shit is so badass. Like I saw that when I was rereading it for this, and I was like, maybe I need like a Huntress back piece. I'm like, this is like the most heavy metal shit ever. Huntress like, goes <laughs> fucking uh, goes fucking crazy in Hush to the point that yeah. Batman's like. Huntress needs to relax. Like, Huntress, you're doing too... Like, as he's laying there half stunned, he's like, Huntress, you're going to have to chill. Okay, uh, (laughs) up next, what is... uh, What else? Okay, I'm going to go for... Uh, we talked about Batman the Animated Series, which I think is like such a huge influence on this. You should definitely watch it. I believe it's all on HBO Max now, which is incredible because it was like impossible to watch unless you had the DVDs for a really long time. But um, I'm actually going to say... I'm going to say Mask of the Phantasm, which as we know, that is like absolutely, for a long time, a lot of people said that was the best Batman movie. Oh yeah, for a while. You know, and I understand it because like it's truly brilliant. It's one of the few DC movies that had a big scale cinematic release Uh, in 1993. It was such a formative movie. And I think that so there's elements that are similar in this narratively. It's about Bruce facing down with this strange new foe and they have some kind of deep connection. I won't spoil it because like legitimately you should watch this movie if you haven't seen it. But I 100% think that this is like the most influential Bruce Wayne on Robin Matt's Bruce in this movie. Like mm. this is a Bruce who feels the burden. And I think Robert's actually talked about this being an influence because it's like this is a Bruce who feels the burden of being Batman like he's not really the billionaire playboy just like in the Batman Bruce is Bruce is like a weirdo who lives in a train station and like a weird Hogwarts kind of castle with (laughs) Alfred like which I love but like Mask of the Phantasm not only is it brilliant and I've watched it already way too many times but like I think that's a key exploration an early exploration of Bruce that was very influential on this movie, unexpectedly so, because it's such a dark movie, but I definitely think there's a lot of animation influence. I agree with you. I think that here's the thing that's interesting about a character like Batman, who has existed now for, what, 80 years or something like that, like 90, is that, first of all, the, the early Batman stuff, the formation, like the the kind of solidifying of what we think as Batman's origin story, canon and rise, happened much more recently than you think for a character mm-hmm. that has existed for eight years. Again, like year one really went a long way to codifying the way we think about Batman, the way we think about his rise and what motivated him to become to put on the cape and cowl. And similarly, I think Mask of the Phantasm and uh, by extension, Batman, the animated series really defined Batman mm-hmm. for a whole new generation that came of age uh, watching television in the 90s and and further on. Like, there's a whole generation of people out there who Mark Hamill is the iconic Joker. Mm -hmm. Is is the iconic Joker. Kevin Conroy is Batman. Is the iconic Batman. Uh, So I, I... I agree with you. These are huge. Okay, is it my turn? I think it is. Okay, I'm going to say the Arkham games. The Arkham video games developed by Rocksteady Studios and uh, Warner Brothers Montreal. Obviously, strong aesthetic inspiration for the movie. I think in terms of defining 
and creating the image and audience's mind of what Batman action looks like. I think the Arkham games absolutely, like, at least for me, defined what it means to watch Batman fight people. And that aesthetic, that really brutal, like, you know, dodge a punch, bash somebody in the face, then take their head and like smash it into a, mm-hmm. a car kind of thing. That's the kind of action that you see in the Batman. And it's so addictive to play and to be a part of in the Arkham games. They're just, yeah. I, I mean, Arkham Asylum, I think, is one of my favorite games of all time. It is an incredibly addictive game. It is a game that I have right now downloaded on both my PlayStation and Mm -hmm. my Xbox. And it is a game that, like, I would pay right. Like, if anybody from WB Montreal or Roxaday is listening, I've played your game so many times, but now I have a new, (laughs) now I have a new version of it, right? Because I have the new consoles. I will pay somebody upwards of $100 to just unlock the entire game so that I can go in and just play the fight levels and just that's it. I don't want to go through the missions anymore. I don't want to do that. I just want to go directly to the mini game where I fight like 50 different dudes all at once. And I need that unlocked. So if anybody yeah. from uh, from Rock City is out there <laughs> listening and can do that for me, please get a hold of me. The Arkham Games, 2009 to present. I totally agree. Like, it kind of blew my mind when I saw the opening fight and it's just a melee fight. I mean, yeah. he's picking things up off the floor. He's sm- it feels like I got so addicted to those those Arkham games. Same. Like I'm really a I'm a platform person and a fighting game person and like a Zelda person. And and I like indie games, but like I got addicted to those games because the fight mechanism is so good and to see that brought to life here, I just think it's so influential. And also like Another great thing about the Arkham games, maybe you don't want to dig into all these comics you don't know. Maybe your pull list is really high. Maybe you don't have the access to them right now, but you do have the Arkham games. Guess what? So many things that are mentioned in this movie. The Iceberg Lounge, Blackgate, all these different criminals that you see, the Joker gangs who influenced those opening gangs, the fights. You can play the Arkham games again now through the lens of this movie and you're going to discover a load of stuff and be like oh yeah yeah that's from there that's from there and like the the fight direct the stunt coordinator robert alonzo he just did such a good job like the fights in this movie they have this crushing impact you know a lot's been made about this film about how this is a batman who doesn't kill and i'm like Mm. he might think that but like i'm pretty sure he killed at least one guy in that first fight because these fights feel so visceral and real and brutal but in a way that feels very grounded. It doesn't, it almost doesn't sound like there's Foley. You know that there is, but you feel the fights. And I and I think the inspiration from the Arkham games is, is really key to that. And let me say that a, a Batman Arkham Asylum, I think deals with the toxic relationship that is the Batman-Joker relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that is, I think, maybe my favorite exploration of that symbiotic, that extremely toxic symbiotic relationship. It's maybe my favorite exploration of that relationship in any in any comic, in any Batman movie, in anything. Because the interactivity, the interactive nature of games just makes you a part of it. And it really mm-hmm. does not shirk from this idea that for whatever reason, Batman can't end the Joker threat. And it makes you wonder and it makes you grapple with the question of, does he on some level 
like it? Does he need the Joker yeah. in some way? Uh, and that is really cool and a really cool question to grapple with in the in the context of a Batman story. I think it's also very key if we're looking at what could influence the next movie. That yes, relationship and that you. vision of it, especially after Venom, all these different things. I think that, yeah, I think that could be, that'd be a smart way to go. Okay, you, next. Okay, so we can't, we mentioned it, but I do think that if you are going to, if you want to really know where it could go next, you've got to read that. So there's, I'm going to tell you, there's three comics. One that yes. I think Reeves was influenced by, and then two that we've kind of mentioned, but I'll, I'll mention them at the end. There is a comic, quite recent comic, Scott Snyder, uh, who had a massively popular run on Batman. And it's years, it's called Zero Year. And it is three different parts of a story. And one of the parts is the Riddler flooding Gotham. So obviously, I right. think Matt Reeves read that. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's Scott Snyder. It has three different parts. It also explores the idea of a ruined Gotham and how Batman deals with it. So I think that's worth checking out. And I will say though, Zero Year and Batman's, I mean, Cataclysm and Batman No yeah. Man's Land. Those yeah. are just so fun. They're, They're really so fun. good. There's loads of great characters in there that I love. Leslie Tompkins, yeah. multiple different Batman rogues. You know, you have just so much there to kind of explore. Like when I worked in the comic shop in London, that was one of the ones where I, they had a big collection of No Man's Land and I just read that in like a day. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. Like every page turn, I just wanted to read it. It's that fun, brilliant kind of comic stuff that hilariously, I would never have guessed, is almost certainly going to be a huge part of where we go from here. I think so too. Uh, okay, the Telltale Games. That's yes. the Telltale Games. So uh, for those of you who are not gamers, Telltale Games was a publishing company now defunct that licensed properties like The Walking Dead, mm -hmm. like uh, like Batman, and told interactive video game-like, they're not exactly action video game stories, but they're more like choose-your-own-adventure point-and-click mm -hmm. type stories, type video game stories that really hung their hat on strong writing and great storytelling. And... They also did Game of Thrones uh, adaptation mm -hmm. story based on a, a, a previously un, unknown house uh, from the Northern Kingdom. And the Telltale Games Batman storytelling is just really good. It's great. It's a great story. You are part of it. The, the storytelling choices are really strong. And the vibe, the energy, the tone is very similar to the mm -hmm. Batman. It's just great. If you can find a way to play it uh, in the year 2022, please play it. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's actually a huge influence, not only because it's detective-based, it's it's all about vibes. It's that slow yes. tale. But also there was a there was an entry, uh, Batman, The Enemy Within, which is, it introduced a version of the Riddler who is like a saw trap killer. He's a serial killer and he has these death traps, they call them, and him and Batman get into this this kind of battle of the wits for Batman to to save the people that he's going to kill in these death traps. And I'm sure that, you know, the idea of the Riddler being a serial killer, yes. especially modeled after the Zodiac, is very, that's very uh, natural experience, like kind of thing that you have route to go down. But I believe that Matt Reeves probably also knew about these games and had a an understanding. I mean, this is a person who built his career making stories about 
heavily CG'd stories that still like struck a heart with the with the apes movies, you know? So yeah. I would think he's probably a game. He's aware of games or a gamer because that feels very on point. I agree with you. Rosie, uh, you've, of course, are writing a lot about this at different places. Uh, if people want to read more stuff about the Batman, what have you written for them? Oh, baby. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Actually, it is officially... This week at Nerdist has been Batman week. So if you want a more broad scope of like, I did 11 movies to watch before Batman that are not DC movies, Clue, All the President's Men, Chinatown. Boom. All these different kinds. Showgirls. I love that movie. Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> it's brilliant. I've, I see those wigs that Zoe's wearing. Yeah. I say it's an influence. I did a history of every origin that Catwoman has had in the comics and the movies and kind of looked at what that could say about Zoe. But if you've seen the Batman then by the time this podcast is out, you will be able to read my Easter eggs piece, which is yes. 3,000 words. We touched on some of them. It's actually such a joy to write about this movie because this is a movie with a lot of concrete references, nods, details. This is much less of my wild Charlie Day-esque theorizing <laughs> because, because the movie is just right, made. This is, con- right, this this is, is made of comics. Yeah. You will find more comics to read. You will explore different character aspects and and where they came from so i did that i did a big ending explained piece about the character that we mentioned before the joker and kind of what that means for the comics and yeah just and also the batman week stuff there's a ton of other amazing batman pieces by all different kinds of writers so that is all it's batman batman's happening i mean i even wrote (laughs) i got to write a lot of fun stuff about batman 66 we didn't really talk about this but i truly believe this the Batman doesn't exist without Batman 66. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Matt, Matt Reeves was five when that movie came out. When the show came out, I think he said, and 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 he loved it. He just thought it was really cool. He didn't see a campiness in it. So I've written a lot about that. I also have a piece coming up about how there's a really cool Batman 66 character nod in this movie. So all kinds of deep dives that you guys can enjoy. Well, Rosie, uh, I am going to head directly to Ernest to read those pieces right now. It's been so delightful to talk Batman. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table, but it was like super hot. And then I um dropped it. And now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? <laughs> Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. With you up next, the omnibus. Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus where lore analysis and understanding come together. This week, sci-fi and future war, real-life conflicts and science fiction. Science fiction and fantasy stories are about worlds, about created worlds, which means they are about rules, which is another way of saying sci-fi stories, fantasy stories are about structure. Very often, most often, these stories are about politics. They are about political maneuvering. They are often about war, very often about war between two species, two nations, planets, internecine civil war throughout a galaxy. 
you know, from the unique vantage point provided by, say, Arrakis, a desert planet, teeming with the rare spice melange, or a magical school, as in Harry Potter, hopes, anxieties, fears about the way people govern themselves, about the way governments relate to their citizens, surface in these stories and really revealing in interesting ways. The mid-19th century was a revolutionary period. The rise of capitalism fueled by the Industrial Revolution was changing ways of life that existed uh, for centuries. And nationalism, uh, then pretty new, aided by a nascent news media, was emerging from the death rattle of empires. In 1848 alone, political upheaval ranging from street battles to actual full-blown revolutions racked France, the independent states of Italy and Germany – Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, Ireland, Romania, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, among many others. A generation later, the American Civil War, which stretched from 1861 to 65, and the Franco-Prussian War shocked observers of the day with the modernity with which those conflicts were carried out. The war between the states saw the first clash of iron-hulled ships, which was extremely alarming to European observers, saw the use of hot air balloons for reconnaissance. This had happened before, but still a fairly new thing. Uh, The instantaneous communication over long distances via telegraph, the first successful deployment of automatic weapons in Richard Jordan Gatling's Gatling gun, and casualty counts of a scale previously unimaginable. The Gatling gun also so used during the uh, Franco-Prussian War and in both conflicts, uh, marshalling the railroad system to transport personnel and equipment uh, was a decisive factor in victory. The spectacle of masses of people energized by issues of ethnicity, nationalism, class, toppling ancient governments, Uh, freeing enslaved peoples, fighting with industrial methods of warfare, was fearful to behold, and it gave rise to a particular kind of military-themed future fiction, best exemplified by Sir George Tompkins Chesney's 1871 novella, The Battle of Dorking. Uh, The Battle of Dorking set the template for a genre that spread across North America and Europe, which used the specter of defeat in a future war to warn the addressed populace that action in the present is required to avoid national humiliation, writes Paul Williams in Race, Ethnicity, and Nuclear War. The story goes like this. Around 1920, an observer is looking back on events from 50 years earlier. Europe erupts in war. Germany wipes out the mighty Royal Navy with a top-secret superweapon. A motley body of citizens-turned-soldiers hustled to meet the enemy outside a market town uh, named Dorking in the southeast of England, and they are then decisively beaten there. The English Empire is uh, cut up and sold for parts, basically, and uh, Britain is left in ruined poverty. Sir George Chesney's story was meant to warn a drowsing Britain that rougher foreign powers threatened to usurp them if they happened to lose their edge. Uh, and it was, a, it was a hit, selling over 100,000 copies, spawning a series of imitators and indeed a whole genre of invasion fiction, reaching a climax with H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds in 1897 that then flipped the genre on its head and made the invaders not foreigners from another nation, uh, but indeed aliens. In late 19th century America, invasion fiction reflected, among other themes, uh, the racist fear of Chinese immigrants. 
Pearton W. Duner's 1879, The Last Days of the Republic, imagined America poisoned from within by hordes of Chinese immigrants. Shortly thereafter, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, barring Chinese workers from immigrating to the United States in 1882. Though Japan's victory over Russia in the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War was mostly celebrated in English-language fiction, Russia uh, then at that time an antagonist of the English-speaking world, uh, it threw a shadow over American imaginations. In 1853, United States Admiral Perry's warship-heavy provocations through uh, Uraga Harger revealed the inferiority of Japanese military forces uh, to those of the West, and indeed the Japanese themselves, who were alarmed at their inability to do anything about uh, this fleet invading their waters. Barely 50 years after Perry, a lightning modernization program called the Meiji Restoration lifted Japan from a fractured feudal nation unprepared to defend its own shores to an industrialized power with strong central control capable of beating a great European power. Jack London's 1910 story, The Unparalleled Invasion, wondered what might happen if Japan's reforms spread to China. The vast and fertile Chinese population uh, in the story was now awakened and spilling over the borders into other countries. Western nations are powerless to constrain Chinese military forces, either by land or sea. And finally, the Americans and other Western powers launch a biological warfare campaign that defeats China in a genocidal fashion uh, that leaves basically complete destruction. Roy Norton's 1907 story, The Vanishing Fleets, traces a similar arc of paranoia from Japanese modernization to Chinese ascendancy. In 1915's Offer's Country, Japan... Using a new aerial warfare techniques destroys the American military with a sneak attack while it is distracted by conflict in Mexico. Quote, very timely in connection with the claims that this country is poorly equipped to withstand an invasion by a foreign foe. In the May 15th, 1915 edition of the Boston Globe, the importance of artillery fire was on terrible display during the trench-bound slog of World War I. The development of more accurate long-range artillery and anti-aircraft guns necessitated new techniques for plotting where shots would land that factored in such uh, details as distance, speed of the projectile, speed of the thing you're shooting at, explosive power, and even as these uh, guns increased in their range, the rotation of the earth, the changing density of uh, the atmosphere as a projectile moved through it, etc. These calculations were uh, performed by hand in those days, painstakingly, by teams of essentially human computers of people that would just fill out uh, these tables to try and figure out, okay, uh, what is the range of this gun? How do we hit something that we're trying to shoot at? Uh, this was slow but workable until the atomic weapons race. The forces unleashed by atomic weapons, you know, just think about it. With a regular artillery shell, you can shoot it. You can test it. With atomic weapons, you really can't. The explosive power is so great that it's essentially theoretical, and so you needed a new way to simulate and predict what might happen. Mechanized methods of crunching numbers were just going to be needed for this because you would just need too many human computers uh, and it would take them too long to try and simulate what would happen with an atomic explosion. And this led directly to the development of the digital computer. In the summer of 1951, with the Cold War taking shape, Maniac 
which stands for Mathematical Analyzer Numerical Integrator and Automatic Computer Model, an early computer designed under the guidance of the brilliant John von Neumann, became operational. Using vacuum tubes and punch cards for random access memory and program storage, respectively, the machine's first test was to simulate the results of a thermonuclear detonation. Maniac crunched the numbers for 60 days straight. The results, writes George Dyson in Turing's Cathedral, the origins of the digital universe, were confirmed by two huge explosions in the South Pacific. Ivy Mike, yielding the equivalent of 10.4 million tons of TNT on November 1st, 1952, and Castle Bravo, yielding 15 megatons on February 28th, 1954. End quote. At the same time, and of course, the introduction of the computer into our lives has done as much as as nearly any piece of human material for generating and inspiring science fiction stories from The Matrix to Tron uh, to the Foundation series, on and on and on. At the same time, Japan emerging from the ruination of its participation in World War II, which ended with the only battlefield use of nuclear weapons uh, detonated over the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively, uh, looked on the post-World War II nukes race with a very specific alarm. Japanese fears about nuclear weapons synthesized with an interest in Hollywood monster movies and uh, bingo bango, Godzilla is born. Gojira, directed by Ishiro Honda and released in July 1954, told the story of the massive titular sea-dwelling dinosaur that spews nuclear fire from its screeching mouth and flattens entire cities under its gigantic claw-like feet. The film was a success. So much so that, as, as you probably well know, it launched the kaiju genre, meaning strange beast, uh, which remains vibrant to this day in the form of movies, comic books, uh, manga, etc. Star Wars is likely the most successful version of this kind of sci-fi war tale, and its aesthetic and storytelling choices reverberate with the echoes and concerns of conflict. George Lucas, who is a baby boomer, was steeped in post-war pop culture, used World War II dogfight footage to create the scenes of swooping X-wings and TIE fighters as they dogfought across the, the surface of the Death Star. But more indirectly, but perhaps more essentially, A New Hope pits scrappy rebels, mostly mostly white, Eurocentric rebels fighting a guerrilla war for freedom against a hegemonic empire with weapons of mass destruction. In this way, Lucas's mega hit and the universe it created allowed American audiences to experience through a fictional space war the moral clarity of the freedom fighter that was arrayed against them during the Vietnam War. A New Hope is basically a Vietnam through a funhouse mirror. Rogue One, released in 2016, uh, is an even more fascinating version of this. Imperial troops occupy a holy city uh, named Jeddah. Uh, there they extract natural resources at gunpoint, and they are confronted by defenders of an ancient religion. You don't have to scratch too hard to find the barely hidden layers of meaning there, and to see why these kind of stories allow us entree to a different kind of emotional relationship with conflict and war. Up next, The Hive Mind with Pete Holmes. Adam West, Kevin Conroy, Christian Bale, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, Robert Pattinson, but there's someone that we're not 
mentioning in that group of illustrious actors who have taken on one of the most iconic roles in pop culture, the Batman. And that is our next guest, the comedian, yeah, writer, so they're producer, think it's ben Affleck. Pete Holmes. No, and Ben Ben Affleck. It's Pete Holmes and Ben is here. And Ben ben. is here. What a disappointment! You you noticeably left out Ben Affleck, and then you're like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, somewhat famous comedian Pete Holmes is here. People just turning it off. Uh, Wonderful to be here. I appreciate that. What what great company to be in. Uh, Well, you know, when we were putting this together, we were like, who can we talk to about uh, Batman and their love of Batman and how they feel about Batman? And we, uh, you know, all of us are such huge fans of your Batman sketches, which you can see in a super cut that's like almost an hour long now. (laughs) There's some really great laughs in it. Um, And we decided... Who better than than uh, the Batman himself, Pete Holmes? Pete, uh, you have seen Matt Reeves' The Batman. Tell us your experiences uh, seeing that movie and what you feel about it. To be fair, I I loved the first fifteen minutes of this movie. I was like mm-hmm. so in. The first time you see the Riddler in the house, no spoilers, but he, when he's revealed, people gasped, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, that's so hard mm-hmm. to do." And and then when you, the first time you see Batman, I'm gonna dork out right now. I literally was like, this is what, yeah. when I am falling asleep at night and I'm pretending I'm Batman, it's precisely this. Cause you know that, <laughs> that cozy, you're wrapped up in bed and you're just kind of like, what would yeah. be awesome mm-hmm. to dream about? It would be Batman, you know, it, Gotham was pitch perfect. The color, the shot, the, the cinematography of the movie was was 100% perfect. I love the costume. I, I, you know, I think people were like, oh, Robert Pattinson, what do you think? And I was like, I thought he was a great Batman. There's not much Bruce Wayne in it, but I thought he was a great Batman. And when he comes in, but they showed this in the trailer, when he whips, rips ass into that guy, like really yeah. like punches yeah. him way too many times. That's they, we already saw that in the trailer, but I thought I was like, oh, we're we're gonna see sort of like an end of his rope. I'm tired of this. Sh- I'm getting too old for this shit. So I'm gonna break faces. Um, he never does that again in the movie, except on the, on the balcony at the end. He sort of does it again. Um, decidedly though, the goon does not have any blood on him. It's very, very tame. PG-13, baby. It, it felt it felt very much, it's funny watching that scene. Whenever I watch a Batman movie now where Batman uh, rips ass on, uh, on thugs. Thank you for using my term. Uh, yes. I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I can't help but flash back to uh, the Batman, the real reason Batman doesn't kill sketch, which is... Uh, just uh, scratches at that funny incongruity of Batman doesn't kill, but also causes like multiple serious yeah. subdural hematomas. Yeah. Definitely kills. You I know, mean, this Batman drops, definitely kills. drops dude on their heads from fifteen yes. feet in the air. How did uh, how did you develop the idea to do uh, Batman in that way to tackle Batman? Well, it's because the, the we love the Nolan movies so much. Yeah. Uh, except for the third one. You, you can tell the most popular one we did was is called Batman Can't Stop Thinking About Sex. And that one was <laughs> written from, because because I realized I went and saw it with Oren, who directed all of them, Oren Brimmer. And we realized that him and Talia Al Ghul had sex. Like it sort yeah. of brushed over, but we were like, but wait, she slept with him. Like he right. should be rubbing that in her face. Right. Like, because he's an idiot. Um, so that is, 
is the only one we wrote from a place of like, fuck this movie. <laughs> like the other, all of the other ones were either written from a fictional place, like there was no Riddler in the Nolan universe, or were written from a place of like deep love for the movies. So the movies were so serious in tone. The, the, the world is so tense and uh, and dark and there's no, there's very little humor. In fact, the third one's the only one that has humor in it and I hated it. And he's like, <laughs> oh, is, is that what that feels like? Like when someone disappears on him and he goes, is that what that feels like? I'm like, what the fuck is this? I don't, well, also, if you're alone, why are you still doing the voice? That's so, like, I hate this. <laughs> yeah, the big great. question. The big questions. The first two were so serious that it begged loving parody. And that's where that came from. Mm. So we're like, he he's so serious about his virtue. You know, in the new one, they don't make as big of a deal out of it that he doesn't kill or that, like there's a couple mentions to like put away your gun or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it feels like in the first ones, he's, he's much more invested in his family's legacy and his values. So it was funnier uh, to make fun of. I, did, I didn't really see anything much to make fun of. Like if I was gonna do a sketch about this movie, the only one I, I was like, the Riddler asked the barista to put a question mark in his latte. Like that, that struck me as, as worthy of seeing that in the sketch and being like, no, 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 like how many times did he have to do it? Right, right. No, 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 the, the dot right. shouldn't be attached. Right, right, right. It's like the set. fern. That's hard to do. That's good. Right. It's Milk like work. the leaf. It's like imagine you're doing. It's actually simpler than the leaf. If you're going to do the leaf, just do the do a it's line. It's simpler than the leaf. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> but also the fact that he's like, this will be awesome. They're going to yeah. arrest me, and then they'll find my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about this because I actually hilariously, I kind of liked. I like the fact that this because it's so early on. This is a Batman who isn't the smartest person in the room because I I kind of he always is, and I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> And good in this that he isn't. But you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting where you said that, you know, you thought Robert Pattinson made like a great Batman. You know, we don't really see Bruce. You've played Batman. You know, what What do you think makes a great Batman? Like, what is that mm. thing that these characters who we see this as iconic, like, what is it that makes a great Batman? Well, I, I think it's gravitas, you know, and the the one thing that I I mean was also sort of funny was that he didn't change his voice. And I think that's because Bale got so much was teased, including by me, for changing his voice. Not teased, just we 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 took we notes. Commented on it. We took we notes. noticed it. It, it was noticed. Yeah, we yeah. we noticed. And then with Affleck, they had the voice modifier modifier, which I thought was really cool. I was like, that's a great way. And then Roberts just talking like Bruce Wayne, the most famous person in Gotham. I I thought that's another sketch area. Was every time he talks, someone should go Bruce. Like every yeah. every yeah. time he talks. Someone should go, that, that, oh, that's, Bruce, that's Bruce Wayne. Hey, Bruce. <laughs> this does, you know what, this is, I will say though, this is very interesting conversation for me because I will say that something that I felt like I saw about this movie that a lot of other people had not commented on or felt on, I feel like this is quite polar opposite to the Nolan movies. So I can understand that if you have a real love of those movies and the version of Batman there, that this doesn't do it for you. So that actually makes a lot of sense. And I'm that's very enlightening to me because I felt like that there was something there that was very different and and weird and it's all subjective of course but that that makes that it makes a lot of sense to me because like those are such formative movies and this is like so weird and long like and i say yeah. that as compliments for me but like I, other people is not i would have forgiven it i i really you're helping me appreciate it more i really think this is the headline for me i didn't like it but i don't think they made it for me 
You know what I'm saying? Like it's been yeah. what, 10 years since the last oh, one. More than like, 10, those yeah, yeah. Oh, those yeah, no, were the right. ones they made for me. And I came home and I said to Val, my wife, I was just like, I just wanted to see light fighting dark. So I, I get what you're saying. You want to see the light versus dark conflict, which I think is a real strength of, of the Nolan films. That's a, for me, there's another level to Batman, which is this idea that like Batman could have ended this, all of this shit years ago. If you just like put two in the Joker's head, put two in the Riddler's head, why do you keep capturing these guys, putting them into a system that's not going to lock them away in any kind of way that's going to be permanent and perpetuating this? And I think for me, what I liked about this movie is it explored Batman, Bruce Wayne coming to grips in a very basic and early way with the idea that like, am I causing this in any kind of way? Mm-hmm. It is, is, are the things that I'm doing in any kind of way perpetuating crime and chaos in Gotham? And that kind of exploration of the weirdness of Bruce Wayne is the thing that I liked about it. Because like, listen, I loved, I think that, uh, I think the Dark Knight in particular is, is, is like an iconic work of incredible, almost like genius level pop culture storytelling. That said, Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne is a kind of a dork. Not a lot of interiority to that guy. He's just kind of like, my parents were murdered and uh, now I beat up bad people. And that's kind of it. You know, like I don't have a lot of, there's not, uh, there's not like a sense of obsession in what he does. I agree. They went back to sort of the Keaton flavor, which is like, if someone's going to dress up like a bat, they should seem unstable. That's what I thought was really great about Mm. it. And then you do have, what was good about it was also what was bad about it, I think, was the walk around Batman. You, when you have Batman walking around like he does in the video games and the comic books and, you know, walking around a crime scene, you know, I liked it. I liked it. And it just is going to change it. It, 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 Here's what, it's not Batman on a clock tower swooping down and kicking ass. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that that's what I really wanted. Pete, you said something that really, I, I think, because I don't think there's anything embarrassing about, I mean, I love Todd McFarlane Batman, right? I love a cape. I love standing yeah. on a, you know, Gotham gargoyle with the huge cape wrapped around you. So like something I think is really cool about Batman in general is like, it's kind of like James Bond. We can all have the versions that we like. And I think in that way, your headline is like, really legit and kind of very true to the nature of Batman, which is like, there is going to be versions of it that we like and that really speak to us. And there's going to be versions of it that are absolutely for other people. And that's kind of the power of a character like this, of an archetypal character. You can have the down and dirty, neo-noir, talking, slow Batman who doesn't know everything. And you can have the Jim Lee, like kicking someone through the air, kind of like badass Batman. And you can have the clean, militarized, like, realistic Nolan and then you can have like the wild Timber and Batman or even the Schumacher stuff you know there's these all exist alongside each other and I think something DC is kind of aiming for now and Warner Brothers is this notion of like if you didn't like Batman maybe you're gonna like The Flash that's right where we're gonna have a bunch of different Batmans and you're gonna be able to see maybe more of that light versus dark, even if it's in a different aesthetic way. So I, I think that's really interesting, actually. I also I thought you were gonna say maybe you'll like this Batman. And that and that's exactly what I was picking up on. I was like, this is a Batman, I think for for slightly younger than I'm 42, like I said. Mm-hmm. I think this is for younger people. I think it's addressing sort of those conundrums of like we see both mm-hmm. sides, like you're you're giving, but you're virtue signaling, or you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. nothing is as simple as it seems. 
But where did we start? Remember, I told you as I fall asleep at night, I like to pretend I'm Batman. Like, and a lot of people have that real mythic, it's a, it's a symbol. Like, mm-hmm. and Carl Jung says symbols transform us way more than people or learning or like symbols. So it's something that I carry in my heart. And I, I really, I keep thinking of Arkham City where the whole, the, uh, Gotham is flooded in, in the fear gas yeah. and, and, he's, and he's losing his mind and he's being tempted by the Joker that lives inside of him. I was like, that's my meat and potatoes. Like he's trying to do the right thing, but he's tormented by his own evil and his own participation in it. But they help us swallow that by just having a little bit more of what you had in the first 15 minutes, which was a perfect Gotham, dark and rainy, beautifully shot. So I don't know. I wish he had kicked the shit out of some more people. That's really, that's, (laughs) you could have, you could have kept him broken. That's a perfect one line review. Uh, So as it's uh, tonight, as you lay down uh, to go to sleep, you lay your head on your pillow. It's uh, the temperature is perfect. The sheets feel uh, wonderful on your skin. It's a it's a nice high thread count, but nothing too crazy. You're <laughs> drifting away. Uh, and what tell us about the Batman dream mm-hmm. that lulls you mm-hmm. off into Slumberland? Oh. Absolutely. First of all, it's an impossible Gotham. Sometimes I do this uh, in some Gothams where the where the subway is really high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, I I just find that to be, if there was one thing that makes Gotham City, Gotham City is rain, certainly. And also a a too high subway, an elevated train. (laughs) It's It's too high, it's unsafe. Why is it so high? That being said, too high subway, rain. um, I'm usually, uh, you know, my sheets are like the the cowl. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you think of, about Batman's life, he's waiting a lot of the time. Like right. there's that scene where where Gordon comes up in the new one and turns off the bat signal and he just walks out and he's like, what's up? Uh, but really he had probably been waiting there two, three hours. You know what I mean? So that is the cozy scenario that I imagine. There's no crime happening, mm-hmm. but you're elevated, you're armored, uh, and you're capable, so you're deeply safe. It speaks to your mammal brain. Like, I am safe, I am uh, ele- high up, no one's gonna get me, and even if they did, I could handle it. That is the Batman that helps me fall asleep. Um, this Batman uh, takes the elevator and, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of <laughs> walks down hallways and stuff, which, by the way, that's actually one of the things I thought was cool about it. Pete Holmes, Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, it's unrelated to Batman, but um, March 31st, I have a new show on CBS called How We Roll. Please check it out. It premieres on March 31st. Pete Holmes, thanks a lot for joining us. This is really cool. My pleasure. Thanks, Pete, for joining us. Up next, The Endgame. Okay, Rosie, we're in the end game now, and today we ponder the question brought to you and me by super producer Saul Rubin. The question is, what's the craziest Batman villain you'd want to see in a sequel to Matt Reeves' The Batman? Rosie, would you wow. like to go first? I love this so much because like, it's such a grounded world but i feel like there's still so many funny fantastical things okay who would i want to see 
If I'm thinking like seriously, I bet uh, <laughs> I, uh, I bet that Matt Reeves could do like a terrifying Professor Pig. You know, continue the like murderish. Shouts to Grant Morrison. Shouts to our guy yeah. Grant Morrison. Like just this kind of terrifying but surreal. You have the aspects of like who is it really? The the dueling ideas of like. The real person versus the person that you present to the world, which is very Batman. I think that could be really good and like legitimately work. But I would also love to see Matt Reeves try and take on something totally <laughs> ridiculous like Condiment King. Or something. Condiment like- King. <laughs> God, we were talking about Condiment King. We were talking about Condiment King in pre Oh, uh, producer Chris uh, apparently has a Condiment King action figure. Condiment King, please describe for uh, those who are not versed in, in the world of Batman or the world of comics, who Condiment King is. Ha, 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 ha. Well, well, well. So this is a classic Bruce Tim Dini creation. Another brilliant thing that came from the Batman animated series and became uh, canon, just like Harlequin. He is like this is one of the weirdest dude. He like shoots condiments. <laughs> like I think there's that's really it. Like I think that there's versions where he's like using them in a scary way. Yeah, he's doing other. He's like he's like giving people allergic reactions with them or something kind of nefarious. But usually, the most classic version you'll see is like one hand is like shooting mustard and one hand is shooting yeah. ketchup. So like how Matt Reeves. <laughs> Would, like, make that kind of serious. Also, one of the funniest things is, like, that's a character who's just always getting beaten by anyone that he sees. So in that way, it's kind of like, you know, we've seen the Harlequin show brought Kite Man in and made I mean, he's a joke, but he's in it. So, like, you know, there's there's precedent for weird villains. Condiment Condiment King uh, and Kite Man, similarly, are, they are the villains who get beat up in the first three pages of a comic book mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, set mm-hmm. up the story. Like when you open up the story, oh, uh, Batman is breaking up a jewel heist and that will be uh, Condiment <laughs> King getting his ass kicked by Batman and then taken yeah, off to Robin, jail. Yeah, or Robin, like yeah, yeah. someone even more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great one. Condiment King is so good. If we ever see Condiment King on the screen, Dude. even just as, like, as an Easter egg character, I will lose it. I feel like if somebody was going to do that, it's probably like Jay. James Gunn. I'm pretty sure he put. I think it was like he had like Calendar Man and Kaleidoscope yeah, and all these kind of funny things as back Easter eggs. So I believe it. Who would yours be? Well, I, I would be who you just mentioned. I'll bring it back to the OG Bill Finger. Mm-hmm. This is one of the uh, the oldest uh, characters in the Batman pantheon. It is Calendar Man. <laughs> for, you know, one of the best representations of OCD in the comics world. He just loves dates. Guys. He just loves dates. He loves knowing about dates. He loves birthdays of famous people, of politicians. And he just loves talking about dates and what they mean this guy, I mean, just keep him in Arkham without any access to like a pencil mm. to keep track of time and a calendar. And that is how you truly punish the calendar man, a nefarious villain 
who just loves being on time and he loves schedules and stuff. I think we yeah. actually we could actually see I could I see think like so. I could I, I I could see like a tatted up memento esque yeah you know where he keeps track of everything on his body kind of calendar. Man. I think you could I think Matt Reeves could actually do a really terrifying calendar man because the idea of this Batman is all about obsession. So yes. his obsession with finding justice for her friend with taking vengeance on Falcone. Batman's obsession with Gotham and his parents. So actually like the notion of somebody who is obsessed with dates and the relevance of dates, especially in a world of Gotham where there's so many secrets. Yeah. You could the Riddler has a calendar man aspect to him anyway, which makes so much sense because of Matt's kind of influences. And you mentioned the long Halloween a lot. I mean, we yeah. all know like yes. the ending may uh surprise you but calendar man is definitely a suspect in yes. that because of the notion of the date-based killings so i think i think that's like it could be a really funny one but i think there's a version where that's actually like really realistic because he doesn't have superpowers and also i love the idea of a batman story in a movie that uses calendar man like as as a secondary villain but also like as the key to the mystery as like somebody mm -hmm. who the riddler or the joker has to keep like hostage because mm. the way his mind works would unlock whatever the mystery is. Write that pilot. Write that script. I think we have a chance to see Calendar Man uh, in a movie and or TV show going forward. Okay. That's it for the end game. Let us know your thoughts and use hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. A big thank you to the great Pete Holmes and of course the even greater Rosie Knight for joining us say on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, please plug more stuff. Do you have anything else to plug? Just my usual stuff. You know what? Uh, um, you can find me on Instagram, Rosie Marks. I'm on this podcast. I'm on Letterboxd. If you want to read some of my comics, I have a bunch of them up for free, so you can read all kinds. Actually, there is a comic I wrote uh, five issues of Backups for called Cougar and Cub, which yeah. is a Batman, Batman and Robin parody about the kind of sexual relationship between a, a superhero and their sidekick but my backups were all inspired by different comic book eras so there's everything from the golden age all the way to like a kind of dan Klaus indie comic style and the my collaborator daniel aruda massa did a brilliant job at bringing those to life so those are really fun and you can read them for free on my website because I also love making comics <laughs> as well as talking about them. <laughs> uh, well, we uh, are looking forward to an announcement about a comic book uh, project. Very that, soon. Very, very soon. <laughs> Next week, we are doing a cinematic Batman retrospective, a retrospective on the Batman movies with some really, really, really cool creator guests. Can't wait to uh, drop that one on you. Don't forget, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. And don't forget, like a bat signal in the sky telling you, we want those five-star ratings. Who are we? I'm five-star ratings. That's what we want. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fithopoulos. Thanks to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time.